I want to sort of ask, answer a question um, that I, I made. <laughs> I made a statement last week when we were speaking about the life that is in Christ. And I said that it was, this is what the, the Holy Communion, the Eucharist that we celebrate every week, that that is the essence of what it's about. And, and at the same time, I said how, speaking to a pastor of a certain denomination, he said, if I had communion every week like you do, I'd be bored out of my skull. And I said, if I conducted communion and believed communion as you do, I would be bored out of my skull. Um, and, and that caused a lot of questions as to uh, how do we understand communion. And I, I know for many of you, especially out on Zoom, that you you see us and many of you participate with us, but has never been answered the question, what is going on? You might have noticed it's very different to the way things are done in many other churches. And so I decided that we would look at the Eucharist this morning and talk about what is it that's going on. And also, um, it's a very special Sunday in, in that relation because we are having a a new format to the Eucharist. And you're, you've got it on Zoom there. John is going to put it up. And those here, we're going to give you what it is. Because uh, there are parts of the Eucharist that never change. But there are other parts that change in the sense that it reflects our experience of the finished work of Christ. And, and what we have seen here in the last number of months, or more than that, um, I think it, it's time. And so we have done this, and that's, so we're starting something new in the Eucharist this morning, but I want to get down to the very bottom of it as to what is going on. So let me read to you, and of course most people know this, but not everybody knows what it's about. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to the Corinthians in chapter 11 and in verse 30, 23. Now, because you've heard this so many times, let your brain stop and hear it. Paul said, Paul said, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. What is this that he heard from the Lord and now delivers to the people that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now the thing that fascinates me, because many people have said, well, you know, that they, they just uh, had that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And um, then it, it sort of the church took over and religion gave us this. 
where Paul says something and is many times overlooked. He said that I received from the Lord. You see, Paul was not there on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. All the other apostles were there, and so they could go out as they preached and said, he said this, we were there. But Paul wasn't. And as I say, people have said, well, it's a sort of take it or leave it. It doesn't matter. Um, and it's hardly mentioned in the New Testament. Well, just a minute. Paul said, I received this from the Lord, which means he did not go to Jerusalem and sit down and have someone give him a lecture on what happened. It was in those years we know little about with Paul when he was in Arabia and he was receiving from the Lord the, the wondrous message that he expounds in the epistles. And he is, is saying, when that happened, when I was alone with God and God was teaching me this gospel, he said, I received from the Lord. That is the Jesus who was in the upper room who started this is now the Jesus who comes to Paul in the Arabian desert and said, this is the way it was. And it was so important that Paul said, I delivered it to you. So this isn't icing on the cake. This is the guts of the gospel. He said, when I was in Corinth and I was establishing you as believers, this is what I taught you. Well, of course, we don't get that in Acts. He didn't say that. Leaves it out because Acts was about something else. But Paul says, when I came and when I was fashioning your lives as new believers, part of that was to tell you that on the night in which he was betrayed, he instituted this meal of a piece of bread and a cup of wine. That puts a, a, a new light on it that the early church um, never said to a new convert, well, you know, read your Bible, pray, and go to church and do the best you can. No, there were certain things, we went over that last week, that they were taught the life of God. And they were taught that in the context of the Holy Communion. See, what did happen in that upper room? That's the most important question you'll ever ask. Because Jesus is going to die literally within a few hours. And just a few hours before that great event, he gathers together the, the inner circle. Now he's going to tell us what it's all about. He's going to tell us what he's going to do, and he's going to tell us what it will be like afterward. What's that? The first thing they did, they're sitting down at a Jewish Passover meal. Only Jesus turns that meal into the meal of the new covenant. And he takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he says the words, this is my body which is given for you. And then at the end of the meal, where there was a special cup on the table, that's another whole story, but he, but he takes the cup at the end of the meal and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So now we know that's what is going to happen in a few hours. Because he was saying it in the present tense, but that's, um, doesn't mean now. Um, his blood is not shed now. 
It's going to be shared in a very short time. So the whole, everything he said in the upper room was not exactly then. He's saying, in fact, what he says next, he says, in that day, in that day, the day when the suffering is over, when the blood is shed, when the resurrection has taken place, all of this is where we're going. And so the first thing we know it's it's this meal that defines what is going to happen in the next hours. But it's not about primarily his suffering. Uh, I, I was raised in England and communion was a very big deal. But it was where you sang these terribly morbid songs and tried to imagine the dying of Jesus. And they said, that's in remembrance of him. no. Jesus said this do in remembrance of me, not in remembrance of my sufferings. That this covers the entirety of his person. And, and, and you never ever, don't you dare ever look at the sufferings of Jesus except through the lens of the resurrection. The sufferings and death of Jesus is the worst thing that ever happened unless he rose from the dead. And that changes everything. And and so we don't come to remember his death. We come to remember him. And him encompasses his death, but infinitely more, infinitely more. And so he says that this is to do with, with what's going to happen. Well, now in John's gospel, he leaves that out. Matthew, Mark, Luke tells us what I've just said. But John leaves it out. He figures it's been said. He tells us what happened next when they had taken the cup. This is my blood. The cup is placed down. Then begins John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And those chapters are about one thing only, that we are to be united into Christ and Christ in us, us in Christ united to the Father. That's all those chapters, that's what they're saying. And that is going to be accomplished by the Holy Spirit who is going to come. The Holy Spirit is not the cherry on the cake. He's not the optional extra. That's why Jesus died and rose again, that the Holy Spirit might come and bring us into this intimate union with God. That's interesting because I thought Jesus died for sin. No, no, no. He he did die for sin, but that wasn't the end. It wasn't the terminus. Jesus came and suffered and died and rose again to bring us into union with God, to be a fellow, a son, a daughter in, in, in the great family of the Trinity. That's why. And it's almost saying, well, and of course we have to deal with sin to get there. We have to clear sin out of the way to get there. But don't stop with sin. Jesus didn't come just to clean up Adam's mess. No, he came to create a totally new Adam, a totally new universe, a new creation. That's, that's what he came to do. And, um, and that's it. Now, right at the very center of the gospel, then, is this meal. And it, many places, they don't know what to do with that. Um, they thought of the center of the gospel was a lecture on the gospel. 
But no, this is something you do. He said as often as you do this, not talk about it, as often as you do it. And and so we come back and it, to some people, it's almost like a, a bone stuck in your throat. We're having, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the invisible. And then you come down to a piece of bread and a glass of wine. And that, well, hold it, hold it. This is, this isn't new. If you go back into scripture, the scripture is full of it. Go back as far as Abraham. I'll start with Abraham. And what is it? He's sitting at his tent and the three come and one is none other than Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they, they sit down and what was the first thing Abraham said? He said, Sarah, bring the food. And they sat down and they ate with God. Um, what about in Exodus, uh, where the covenant was made? And right there in Exodus, it says that the elders of Israel sat down and God ate with man. God and the elders of Israel had a feast together. That's as far back as Exodus. Or you go into the Psalms. And, and now I guess we sort of, I suppose, forget what we're saying. Because he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, that's like like me handing you a vegetable or a, a, a rib or something and saying, you've got to taste this. This is great. And, and David is saying, taste. Now, that's, that's eating language. That, that's a, a feasting language. There's other ways he could have said it, but he said it deliberately, come to a feast in which the goodness of God is on the menu. Do do you follow me? Or what about in Psalm, what is it, Psalm 90? It it says, satisfy us with loving kindness. And the word satisfy there is 100% a food word. The word satisfy in the Hebrew means being a glutton. It means stuffing yourself. It's a Thanksgiving turkey word. It, satisfied. I can't eat another thing. And I push myself away from the table. That's the Hebrew word there for satisfy. And he uses that word. And again, he could have used other words. But he used a, a feeding word and said, feed me until I am stuffed with loving kindness. Until I'm a glutton for loving kindness. Feed me. Or one of the favorites, you see. Um, Lord is my shepherd, makes me to lie down in green pastures. Or a better rendering of that is in lush green meadows. So that the, the sheep doesn't even have to get up to eat. It can just turn side to side and is <laughs> surrounded by lush green meadows. What's well, so that? It's food. But then if you missed it there, two verses down, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Food, food. They talked about it all the time. Uh, And now that the God of the Old Testament has become flesh. He's become one of us without ceasing to be the eternal God he is. And now he's sitting across the table from them. So all these hints all the way through the Old Testament. Now that God is sitting in front of us and he is saying, take and eat me. 
drink me. It fits in. Of course, he'd already, in John's Gospel, and maybe that's why he left out the institution of that, but in John chapter 6, it is one of the, well, for some people, almost scariest chapters in, in the New Testament. Um, let me read it quickly to you. They, he had, the night before, afternoon before, had been the feeding of the 5,000. And, and they're all excited now and they, they come, you know, do another meal for us. And um, he instead points to himself. He says, you missed it. I am the bread of life. And he goes on, then he says, verse 49, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This, himself, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. So two times over, he said they had to eat him because he's the bread of life. The Jews began to argue and say, hold it. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So I said that's what it means, but they, they said it too. That's what they picked up. Jesus said to them, truly, truly. This is, which means this is a, an un, eternal truth. Eternal truth, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. Then very interestingly, he said, that's what I do with my father. Have you ever noticed that? He said, as the living father sent me and I live because of my father. He's just said, you live because you eat me. Now he says, that's what I do. He said, the father sent me and I live because of him. In the same way, he who eats me will also live because of me. I couldn't be any plainer. And as I say, it's not just me reading into it. The Jews were so angry, they just walked away in disgust until there was just a group of his disciples standing there. And he said, well, are you going to? If he didn't mean that, that would be the ideal time to say, hold it, guys. I guess I overspoke. And you've got to understand, I didn't really mean it. No, he said, I said it. I meant it. They've all left. Are you going to go too? And Peter, confused but groping, said, to whom can we go? As if there, if there was another, we would be gone. But he said, where, where, there's nowhere to go. You had the words of eternal life. But the eternal life that he's just been talking about is this eating of himself as body and blood. So there in the upper room, he brings it up again. And he is saying the bread is his body to be eaten. The wine is his blood to be drank. And they and we in the church of 2,000 years respond 
hearing what he said, we say the amen, and we rest on his word. Well, what we've got here is that we look at a piece of bread, and we see a piece of bread. It feels like a piece of bread. It is a piece of bread. And we look into a cup of wine. It smells like wine, looks like wine, tastes like wine. But apparently Jesus took the same piece of bread and said, I see this is my body. Took the same cup and said, this is my blood. So now you eat this, you drink this, and in so doing, I become a part of you, and you become a part of me. The words that were used back there in the earliest church to describe what was going on here, um, it it is an amazing thing just to look at the words. Listen in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Paul again is speaking about the Holy Communion. And he said, is not the cup of blessing which we bless, that is, the cup of wine which we call the blessing of God upon, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Now, that word sharing... Yeah, that is what the Greek word means. So I'm not contesting that. But it means, so there are shades of meaning to it. And it would be perfectly right to say that we are partaking. We are participating in the blood of Christ. We're actually taking, partaking of the body of Christ. It means to take into oneself. Or another way, this is out of the Greek dictionary, I'm saying, I'm not making this up. It it says a, a joint participation. That is, the food is on the table and we are going to make ourselves one with that food by taking it into us. And now we have participated together. Um, another word which is very fascinating is fellowship. That is one of the main, actually, if you look through the New Testament, this word is translated most of the time as fellowship. And um, you've got some verses which suddenly take on a new idea that we have fellowship together. You link it with this verse. It means together we are fellowshipping. We're participating in each other as together we participate in and share together in the blood of Christ, in the body of Christ. And it doesn't say we share together in a piece of bread and a cup of grape juice. No, it didn't say that. It goes straight to the jugular and says when you eat that bread, you're eating the body of Christ. We're sharing in his body. We're participating in his blood. So so what, what is he getting at here? Um, well, number one, what he's saying is could not be said until the incarnation. I, I don't have to tell you surely that God, God the Father, God the Spirit, does not have a body. You do know that. Yeah. The God is spirit. 
That doesn't mean to say he's a ghost or he's insubstantial, but he's it's, it's on another dimension to us. That's our uniqueness as human beings. We've got a body. And the love of God in sending the Son, he came and he took to himself a body. God took a body. And in that body there were veins and blood. But he never ceased to be God. And so there was a change in the Holy Trinity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But now the Holy Trinity in the Son has taken a body. There's a human body in the Trinity. Huh. He says, you, you not only acknowledge that, you eat it. You, you are joined to it, so there's, there's, it's seamless. You, you eat it. Now, he wasn't... Please... There's so much to say here, but um, he wasn't talking about the body that he sat there with, which was the body that from the baby that was born of Mary. But he wasn't talking about that body, for that body is the body that was going to be sacrificed for us. He was speaking of the body that came out of the tomb three days later. Do you realize when he rose from the dead, he did not discard his body? It isn't that God took a body and said, I've got to have this body so I can die for them, but thank you, Lord, that's over, so now I can get rid of my body. Do you realize right at this moment, Jesus still has a body? I said there was a change in the Trinity, and it wasn't just a you know a parenthesis. Jesus was not here on a visitor's visa; he became one of us, and he is still one of us. He has a body, and how you can describe it, I don't know. It's beyond words that I know. Call it a glorified body, a new body, but it was a body when Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> It was a real body. I would say it was more real than any real body in this place. And I still don't know what I'm talking about. But it was, it was, certainly it was substantial. I mean, he stood there and they're terrified. Who wouldn't be? He stood there and he said, I am not a ghost. It couldn't be plainer than that. He said, this is my, he said, handle me, touch me. Come on. In, we, we say Thomas was the one who said, I, I want to put my hands in, in the wounds. Why did he say that? Yeah. Because they did that. And they told Thomas who wasn't there. He said, I want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't doubting Thomas. They all, they came, and I, can, I can't imagine it. Stretches my imagination that they go terrified, timorous, and they're touching him. And then they squeeze him. And then they see the nail prints. And then he sat down on a chair and said, what did you have for dinner? I'd like some if there's any leftovers. And he ate their doggy bag. You know, it's, 
And they bring him, would you like to be the woman who went to the kitchen and comes back with a plate of fish and bread and they put it down in front and then comes back, what's he going to do with it? And they watched him eat it. Where did that food go? If he was a ghost, you would have seen it going down. He, he ate, he ate the food and the food was transformed to be part of this glorified body. And then Peter said later on, for six weeks, six weeks, we don't know anything about it. That's the only thing we know what Peter said. For six weeks, we ate with him and we drank with him and we had conversations and he taught us a substantial body. A body you could touch, a body that conversed, a body that taught them. So they weren't eating and drinking with a memory. Yikes, they would have needed a psychiatrist. You know, if they got there and they sat down and talked to a memory. Uh, Come on, you've got to get with it. No, this was a real person with a body that's beyond our comprehension, I'll grant you, but not a memory, not a doctrine. The doctrine had flesh, bones, voice. And he had said, when he instituted this, he said, do this in remembrance of me. I'll get to remember in a minute, but he said, eat of me in my glorified newness, in the triumph of who I now am. Eat me, become one with me. We fellowship, that word would be applicable there. We participate, partake, we become one with a shared history. So the rest of the New Testament says you were crucified with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you rose with Christ, you ascended with Christ. What's he saying? You have become so one with him. What I say of him, I say of you. He has become you and you have become him, except you are still you and he's still he. But you are participating, you're sharing. Or as I said last week, the life that we live as Christians, we live by another's life. That's what it is. He said, as I said before, don't, don't just remember my suffering and death. And that is where a multitude of believers, when they do celebrate this, that's as far as it goes. They just say he died, he suffered. And in some areas you will see these, and I say it very carefully, but they're they're macabre. They, they, they are pictures that are intended to revolt you of the sufferings of Jesus. And now think about it, look at it, stare at it, no, that's, you've missed the point. The body that we are to participate in is the body that came out of the tomb and said, I am the resurrection and the life. The body. Did you notice the body they put in the tomb? Well, yes, it's beyond words. I wouldn't even go there. The Passion movie came as close as I've ever seen, but they missed it by a hundred miles. Um, the body of Jesus on that cross, is it says he was marred to the point where he didn't look like a human being. Ripped and torn and shredded so you could see his organs and bones. 
That wasn't so when he came out of the tomb. He was complete. The only thing is what he retained by choice, the nail prints, and the, the, but the rest had been completely healed. He's a body of radiant light. Well, glory as we say. It was in his body that he defeated sin. The flesh in his body was crucified. He, he carried our grief and our sorrow, says Isaiah 53. The grief and sorrow, two words in the Hebrew which mean the most intense mental, emotional, physical pain. It's in his body. And he says in his body on the cross. So he didn't go off to some ethereal never-never land and battle Satan or whatever. It's on the cross. He says, on the cross, he bore our sin. It's on the cross that all the powers of Satan, principalities, powers, the hiss of the serpent himself, it says they were all over him and he threw them off on the cross. This all happened before he died. But it was in his body on the cross The blood of the new covenant, we could stay here for six weeks. The, the, all the Old Testament was looking for this. The covenant, the original made with Abraham, the promise of blessing to every family on the face of the planet. But every covenant had bloodshed. Because at the center of a covenant was the statement, I will keep this covenant even if I die to keep it. And if you don't keep it, you will die. So there in his sufferings and death and bloodshedding, two things were happening. Israel had broken the covenant and they must die. So Jesus steps in, I die your death. But at the same time, that bloodshed said, I die to ensure every promise ever made shall be kept. And that is blessing to all families of the earth. It's, um, you know, just, just think about what I said. That you actually participate in, you partake of, you are a joint participant in a covenant that can never be broken, and that every promise comes to us through the shed blood of the covenant. I gave an illustration last week, but um, I'm going to do it again because it, it rippled through the whole, all you Zoomers and here. Uh, I actually had messages, you know, people who didn't know where they could get it on the web and they're clamoring for... And it was this illustration they referred to. Um, but it is the one that, to me, explains a lot that how can I, in absolute seriousness, not a preacher's rant, I mean, how can I actually participate in the life of God, and not in a general sense, but the specific life that became body and blood, and specifically, intentionally, caused all sin, brokenness, grief, sorrow, all to meet in him. 
and shedding blood, making the covenant action. That as surely as my blood is shed, so sin and the flesh is defeated and grief and sorrow are gone. And as surely as my blood is shed, this is all yours and Satan is under our feet. How on earth could I eat that? How can what we're going to do in a moment when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we're doing it, but in inside of me, how do I, how do I even comprehend that? And the illustration I used last week is the baby in the womb. The baby in the womb through the umbilical cord is totally attached to the mother to the point where that baby is taking the flesh of the mother. Eating the mother? Yeah. Blood is involved. But everything she eats, the baby eats, for good or for bad. Everything she thinks, every emotion she has, is fed to that baby. So all she is becomes the food of the baby. The circle in which she moves, her friends, the baby hears that and it takes it, eats it. The TV program she watches becomes... It's all shared participated in, partaken of, fellowship to the max. Mm -hmm. To the point where the mother's health, the mother's flesh, the mother's emotions, the mother's fears and anxieties, joys, hopes, the baby eats it. And this isn't spooky, this is a simple fact. When that child is born, it's the sum total of what the mother has been for nine months. And yet in the wonder of it all, although the baby is what it is by the life of the mother, the life of the mother has become that child, yet the child hasn't become the mother and the mother hasn't become the child. They're two separate. And yet, they are joined together at the deepest thing. That, that, and, and don't, don't run with that, that but that's uh, insight into what this means. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. And he said that is made a reality to you through this bread and this wine. I am inside of you, which means I participate, I partake. In the life, in the life of Jesus, I participate in the nourishment of my very innermost spirit with his spirit. The triumph of Christ is my triumph. I eat of him. It's poured into us through the Holy Spirit, who is the umbilical cord, if you want to have that illustration. His victory over the darkness the love of God that has been lived into human. When God came into human, 
We've never seen it before. The love of God inside a human. Now inside of me through the Holy Spirit. His wisdom, my wisdom. The same Holy Spirit that is upon Jesus now is upon me which joins us together. And John in his first letter, first verse of first chapter, he says, we have fellowship one with another. That word, participate, share, fellowship. And he said, an hour for our fellowship, he's speaking to the group that gathered around John. He says, we have fellowship. In a great sense, we are one inside of another. But he said, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And he's speaking of what we're talking about. He says, we actually participate, partake, share in the Father and the Son. It's in the stories that Jesus told. Unless we'd had this conversation, we might miss it. But especially Luke 15 See, he says, the shepherd comes home and says, rejoice with me. I found my sheep. Well, in plain English, see, the word rejoice is a big word in Hebrew. And rejoice, Old Testament, New Testament, it means to the Hebrew people, let's have a party of parties. Um, there were, rejoice was not a, 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 an insipid grin on your face. Rejoice was not even laughing together. Rejoice insisted on a party. Dancing. Actually, they always danced at their parties. And um, then, of course, in, in that, that's rejoice with me to the shepherd and the, the woman who found. But then the father in that last one, do you remember? The, it was the father who says, my son has come home, killed the fatted calf. And they had a city-wide party. When the elder brother wouldn't go in, do you remember what the father said? It is necessary that we go and rejoice. Necessary. We've talked about it before. It's the divine must. It's a word always used for a divine decree. And the father, Jesus puts the words in the father's mouth. This rejoicing is not just having a good time because the kid's home. This is a necessary, we must do it in order to establish into history this child has come home. Yeah. And then it says, doesn't it, that the father with the, the younger, the prodigal son, it says they went into the feast together, which means the son had yielded, received the father's love, and now let's go and Establish it in the feast. It says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, we've talked about that enough. But the word remember has nothing to do with our Western way of saying remember. Remember in the Bible means to take something from the past. And you didn't have to be alive when it happened. From You take it from the past and you bring it into the present by redoing it and in so doing release into this moment all of the power, all of the authority, 
all of the joys and promise of that past event are now released into this now moment. It's a sort of a time warp. Um, it happened 2,000 years ago. But it is now in this moment, as the clock ticks working in my body, and I would say as if I was there. But it's not as if I am there. But where is there when you've remembered it into the present? This is there. Do, do you follow me? Okay, you don't, but think about it. Um, that, that, that there's no more there. Where is this finished work? Where is this exalted Christ? Well, where is here? Because we've remembered him into this moment. And how do you remember? By doing something physical. Doing again. The bread and the wine. It's interesting. It doesn't say, he said, do, 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 do this. In remembrance. Bringing it into the present. They, us, we're not told to try and think it. So that's where my friends get messed up because they try to think his sufferings, try to imagine. He didn't say that. He said, do this in remembrance of me. The remembrance is not looking back to talk about it, but is. So he's saying this is too big for your mental process. Don't try and think it. Don't try to imagine. Do it. You see, we're not remembering his sufferings and death. Well, we do, but only through the lens of the resurrection. We're not eating the Galilee Jesus. But we are remembering and participating in the exalted, glorious, ascended Jesus. This, this has got nothing to do then with trying to be like Jesus. You're not trying to be like him. You are participating in him. You're not saying, what would Jesus do? I don't have a clue. But I am now participating in what he's doing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Living by another's life. Mm -hmm. So I say again, we're not called to an intellectual knowing. I, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with saying, I don't have a clue what's going on. I, I'm not ashamed of that. I don't know. I know enough to report on what I don't know. But the point is, it's not something for knowing. This doesn't belong in a seminary. It doesn't belong in exams. And See, if the Christian life would have been an intellectual affair, then he wouldn't have given us this. He would have said, go into a study, go to a library, be a student... And that would have fitted. He didn't say that. Instead, and I mean, get it straight, he said a meal. Bread and wine, a staple meal. And although we do it here, 
usually internationally you're eating with friends and families in the kitchen and so Jesus doesn't say go to a library and study me he said let's go to the kitchen and have a meal and meal then identifies us not as students but as hungry people hungry people are going to be full of joy because of the feast and we eat a piece of bread or as Jesus said it's his body and we drink his blood John chapter 6 again we've been there I hope you remember it started out with they wanted him to give them another meal but he quickly moved from there and said I am the bread of life come down from heaven you eat the bread but then he said it was like the manna that's interesting are you with me you're tracking what I'm saying he said that I'm the bread of life but I am the real manna that comes down out of heaven do you know what he's talking about you know they they went to bed with nothing in the tent but with the promise of God that underneath the the dew in the morning there will be manna and you know what manna means it's a Hebrew word never been translated manna means what on earth is it because that is what they said they went out and they they couldn't even describe it it was something 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 yeah it's bread I, what is it and they never did answer the question so they called it the what is it manna it was God's gift that completely nourished you it had all the minerals vitamins proteins everything what is it the mystery food the great mystery I take that bread and I look at Jesus in his present glory that he said as I eat that bread I am mystically yes it's a mystery I am connected I abide I live I participate at a level that's beyond my comprehension if anybody out there says what do you do there on Sunday morning I would say it's the great mystery what is it but it you eat knowing what's going on and something happens I tell you what we do we is it you got to lay down the question as to now what's going on how can I think this through so that by the time I come to eat it I've got it all worked out no 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 lay that down flush it down the toilet you don't think toward it you don't circle it for understanding you jump in you is it and so when you come here do do you hear what we say to you we hold the bread we hold the cup we say this is the body of Christ we don't say do you believe it is yeah, yeah. we say it is like it or not it is and what are you supposed to say if you know what's going on you say amen, amen. meaning I is it yes. 
You plunge in. You're not asking questions. You're not seeking to have an intellectual grasp. Because that's how you live this Christian life. All day long we're ising. Christ is our life. Because I can't intellectually explain that. But boy do I know it. But I can't explain it. Or could I say it's physical faith? And there is a time, and I don't really understand this. I mean, at all. But I think, I think we're too proud to say that we don't understand this. Um, and that's why forever when I'm speaking, I'm always asking, do you understand? Yeah. And I'm watching everybody's eyes and... Many times their eyes give them away. They're saying, yes, I understand. And their eyes saying, I don't have a clue. But uh, (laughs) the fact is there are some things that you can only understand by physical faith. And I'm not going to go there, but baptism is, is the first thing. You know, we say the sinner's prayer, which isn't in the Bible, but baptism is. What you do in baptism, you is it, if you were taught correctly, you is it. I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I rose with, I ascended with Christ and the Spirit was poured upon me. You, th- you can think that. You must have a better brain than me. You can actually imagine that. I, I'm, I'm trying to hold on. It's like... Holding on to jelly is, is slippery. I, I, and so isn't it incredible? He gave us physical faith. He said, St- stop thinking about it. Is it? Yeah. Get in the water yes. and we're going to put you under goodbye. You're dead. You're buried. We'll bring you out. Look, you're resurrected. Mm-hmm. Now come on up the steps in ascension and the Holy Spirit poured upon you. I don't think that. I is it. I plunge into it and I go through a mime. I go through a... And, it, and my body is involved. And it's as if my body says, now I get it. And my mind says, I, yeah, I'm, I'm getting it because it happened to you. And, and the second thing after in the early church, that baptism was your sinner's prayer if you want to. But they, they went directly then to the Eucharist. What is the Eucharist? It's the same thing. Christ lives in you. You actually partake of his life. How do we do that? I can't think it. But he gives us a piece of bread and he says, you see bread, I see my body, eat me. And I eat and I do, I do. I eat of Christ. It's interesting, he says, take, take this. Which that's a yeah, it's good enough translation, except that sometimes in Greek that they they say it a little bit stronger than us, and this this word take. How can I? So sometimes translated receive, which is that's now I would have a problem with it. Um, if at, at Christmas time, someone puts a gift in your lap and it's your gift 
Or you see a gift, it's got your name on it, but no one's giving it to you. So you get up and you take it. That's this word. This word is not passive. It isn't that it's being forced on you and no, it's I take it. Meaning it's mine. It's got my name on it and I receive it. But it's receiving it with a beautiful aggression, you know. I'm not going to just sit here and, well, if it, if somebody happens to throw it to me, that's good. If not, you know, whatever the will of God is. No, this is, I see what's mine, I'm going to, there's no begging. Right. Not a mention of begging. It's not, oh, God, I, no, it's not even asking. You know, notice that. He didn't say ask. We don't ask. We don't grovel. We don't beg. Take it. And so we stand in front of you. We say, this is the body of Christ. Amen. I take that. Yes. I don't say, oh, well, I'm not worthy. Oh, you're a liar, you see. And then it says, as often as you do this, as often as you do this. Why? That's what people have a problem with. I say, every week? Yeah, sometimes every day, wouldn't that? Mm-hmm. Why the repetition? See, I'm being serious. I'm not leading you anywhere. Jesus gave no limit. He said, as often. Well, if this is what I've been saying it is, this most intimate, this most love bond between me in Christ, Christ in me, and us in the Father through the Spirit, I'm I'm totally wound up in the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If that's the case, why on earth would you say, let's do it in six months' time? You know, you you sit down with with your, your beloved and you share intimate conversation and being together, and you say, well, that was so wonderful, let's meet in a year's time, we don't want to get used to this. Right. <laughs> don't make sense. The very nature of the case, you would expect what happened for 2,000 years. The church, and sometimes that church has been as off as it could be, but somehow they knew Though they didn't know and spirit, but still they they said somewhere, somehow, this is at the center. And and in this celebration, we're sitting in the middle of a remembrance. Do you realize what's going on? You're sitting in the middle of a time warp. I mean, this makes science fiction look stupid. This is the real thing in, in that conversation after this Jesus said the Holy Spirit will bring all things to your remembrance this isn't doing it just because that's what they did in in those days you remembered in this way no this transcends that this is the Holy Spirit actually bringing you to this unusual this real presence And so, in in the middle of the chaos, and as far as anybody hearing my voice right now, you've never been in such chaos as the world is in right now. So in the middle of that chaos, we adjust our seeing. 
we come back and we sit down in the middle of final reality. And we get everything straight in our head. We, we see life now through the eyes of the ascended Jesus. Yeah. Set our eyes on things that are above. And I might say repetition, because that's another thing. We say the same thing every week, except this week. <laughs> We're going to change it. But we change it, we update it to where we are right now. Yeah. But we do say it every week. The prime reason for that is that was the essence of meditation. Um, meditation in the Bible has nothing to do with the Buddhist and the Eastern. Meditation in the Bible was repetition. You, you would repeat, usually for them, a verse or a psalm, and you would repeat it again and again and again, silently within you. But many, many, many times they would repeat it vocally because they weren't too into silent things. And so they would mutter it. That's one meaning of the word, to mutter. You hear someone muttering, talking to themselves, and they are repeating over and over. The same thing, the same thing over and over and over. In fact, in the middle of it, it says, don't let this depart your mouth. That is, don't go blabbing it to everybody. Don't let it depart your mouth. Keep it to your mouth until you've seen it. You've got it. You live it. Meditation is chewing the cud. It's what the cows and sheep do around here. They regurgitate their breakfast and they eat it five times over. Um, and that's meditation, literally. You regurgitate God's word and until it, it's in the way you think, you speak, you act. Mm -hmm. It's not a list of rules. Yeah. It is that it's become your very life. Yes. So they, we do the same thing, we say the same thing. Why? So we get into the middle of it because we're not having to think about it. Right. The kind of stupid illustration, though, amazingly, it helps some people. Um, we do this all the time with things that matter. Um, you never have to think about Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, go there. If you're a good charismatic, we're free, you see, we're free. So we're so free. How should we have dinner today? Should we eat off the floor? Why Why not? We didn't do that bit last day. You're free, you've got to do something different, you see. Shall we have knives and forks? In Africa, they have leaves. So, shall we scoop it up with a leaf? Or how? Do you realize what you never think about? Because yeah. you do it all the time. Right. Same thing. How boring. Same thing. But that's the point. Now I can enjoy my meal because I didn't have to come to the agonizing decision. I am so free. I could eat this off the floor, maybe, or off the sideboard, or out in the garden. Uh, no, I don't have to think about it. It's been decided among our people this is the best way to do it, so that's it. We do it. Well, the menu, what should we eat? Shall we have a hamburger for Thanksgiving dinner? No. It's sort of been decided. This, this is what we have. Do you follow what I mean? I said it's a stupid illustration, but 
I find many times questions people have about the way we live as Christians is actually all around us. You you go to the um, when your kids are graduating. They say the same thing every all the time. Why? Because you can't do it any better. This has got to have every word in it. It has a meaning, and it, so you do it the same way, same way, same way. Why? Then we all get into it, and they throw their caps in the air, and they're free as birds, but they're free within a certain, this is the way we do it. And so we do this, not only in remembrance of him, but also giving thanks to the Father as the one who is portrayed to us as as the lover. Christ is co-equal with the Father as the speech of the love. And the Holy Spirit is co-equal with Father and Son as the love in action. But the Father thing. What I read at that dedication this morning about that little girl that we're realizing to be in the hands of the Father. And I read what the Father said in Ephesians. Um, and the whole of this that we shall do, now it's getting to be a few minutes away, we shall do it, and it's all directed to the Father. We're saying, Father, thank you. This is what you've done. We come to Christ, our life, our life. Can I quickly, and I, I have really questioned whether to do this, because what I've said is the heart of it. We really meet with the living Jesus in the bread and the wine. But it might help you, because it's helped a lot of people, that this is a feast of symbols. And the reason I hesitate is that in America, where the Western world, we have so devalued words that words are no longer of any use. Um, It's part of the communistic uh, doctrine. Take away their history and take away their words and and replace them with other words. Then words mean nothing. History means nothing. And they take over. Well, the church does much the same thing. And um, words... So symbol, and I've heard it so many times. Well, it's only a symbol. Okay, right now I know you know nothing about the English language. There's no such thing as only a symbol. So what I'm talking about here is is the original meaning of the word symbol and its highest application. Because a symbol conveys what it symbolizes. Now, did you get that? A symbol conveys what it symbolizes. Sometimes, if not always, more potently than if you took ten weeks to try and say it. The symbol says it in a moment and says it with such power that it conveys it. It, it, We use the word when we're speaking of something that's too big for words. It's too big for this moment, so we we have a symbol. So the symbol visibilizes the invisible. And when we come into the world of the Holy Spirit, how much more so? 
that the Holy Spirit uses symbol in order to come to the reality which is in the symbol. Okay, the the one that people seem to understand the most. A dollar bill. You know, if we had time to play with that, I would say, I'd hold up a dollar bill, what's in my hand? And you would say a dollar bill. And I, I say to you, if you think that's a dollar, you're stupid. Because a dollar is actually the weight of precious metal. A dollar is how you weigh out gold and platinum. and It's a piece of paper, for goodness sake. Are you blind? It's a piece of paper. Piece of paper. Made in the same way as your exercise book. Piece of paper. And you say it's a dollar, a weight of precious metal? Well, because we're both right. But you see, we so understand symbol that we've forgotten it's a symbol. You don't go and come home from your shopping spree and say, look, I, I bought this dress for five pieces of paper. No, you say, I bought this dress for $50, you see. Well, that would you would need a truck to cart around the precious metal that you just said you paid for that. Are you following me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For that, that piece of paper, people will die to get their hands on it. They'll stick a gun in your face to take it. A piece of paper? Yeah. Because that piece of paper has been duly set aside to be paper beyond all papers. And an authority has said that it is a symbol of a dollar, or five, or ten, or a hundred. Which now means you take that piece of paper, but in taking the piece of paper, you actually are taking the dollars. To the point where, yes, you got that dress for pieces of paper, but actually for the weight of precious metal that was behind it. the whole of the American Constitution, everything that America stands for is in a piece of cloth with some dye on it called a flag. It's only a symbol. Only a symbol? Then why do our enemies burn it? If it's only a symbol, why do they? They think they're burning America. And they're right. They're right. You go to some of these countries that I've been to where they're hostile to us. And you feel their eyes in your back like knives and you're beginning to wonder what's going to happen next. And then you see the American flag over a building and you know that's the American embassy. And you underneath that flag, the laws of America, the Marines, you're safe. Just a piece of cloth. Oh. A wedding ring. A piece of twisted metal. Yeah, tell your wife that. <laughs> that. That is a covenant bond. It was a piece of twisted metal in the jewelers. It was. 
But then, as you were married, and the marriage and the rings were blessed, what was that saying? It's no longer a piece of twisted metal. It has, in fact, become the bond of this wedding, marriage. Do you remember the days when you'd seal a deal with a handshake? Well, you know, if you lived in those days, it was not flesh on flesh. Behind your hand was everything you are. My word is my bond. And you would never, you would never shake hands unless your whole person was behind it. And shaking hands is a covenant from most ancient days. When you'd cut your hand and with a handful of blood, you would mingle your blood and say, upon my life and death. Yeah. Symbol. You get what I'm saying? Yes. And so, reservedly, I will say the bread and the wine are symbols. If you don't understand the English language, please don't go there. What I'm saying is, when I meet the flag, I meet America. Mm -hmm. When I meet a piece of paper with a dollar on it, I meet the weight of metal. When I eat that bread, I meet with Jesus' body and blood. I meet with the ascended Christ. I meet with everything he did, all that he is. I'll finish with this. You don't have to believe to make it happen. It's not like Tinkerbell in Peter Pan, where if, if you believe in her, she shines more brightly. No, this is so. And if, if you're an unbeliever or one who doesn't believe what I'm saying, you are in the presence of believers and therefore, this happens whether you know it or not, like it or not, wish it or not. I have invited numerous people over the years who question everything I've said on this. In fact, question me on the very life of Christ in us. And I have said, come to our gathering and come and eat and drink with us and report back to me in 12 or 15 weeks, and you're free to go, if you can. Something happens. People say, Do you never have an altar call, you never call people forward. I said, they come forward every week. And every week they are nourished at the very heart of their being with the life of Christ himself. Let me give you a couple of illustrations and I'm done. I don't know, some of you were there, maybe, maybe not. Out at Kerrville, you know, annual retreat. And one year we had a witch, I mean a real full-blown witch, who came. And our God only knows, I'm not going into that side of the story. But she said she wanted to become a Christian. But she was wrestling with giving up her powers as a witch. And as I say, I'm not going there. Fact is, she was there. She knew nothing of what we were doing, nothing of what we were saying. 
except she seemed to be sincere that she wanted to come to Christ. And um, so as in all our retreats, the, the final day we have the Holy Communion. And she sensed that this isn't for her. And so she stayed in her room. After Holy Communion, we had lunch. And the setup was to get to the lunchroom, you had to pass through the place where we'd had the communion. So we're all sitting at the table for lunch, and she shows up, came through that door. She was white as a sheet, almost trembling. She said, what happened in that room? She said, I just, I just walked through. And she said, from the center of the table there, there was a river of golden light that was like clouds coming over the side of the table, and I had to get around it. And she said, I felt God was filling the place. Now, she didn't believe. She saw what we had not seen, but had experienced Think about that as to what happens here Sunday after Sunday, and you might not see it. People in the power of darkness sometimes see what we don't see because they need to see it. But another one is a very close friend of mine, a pastor, and he had a complete nervous breakdown. No psychiatrist knew what to do with him. He could no longer speak coherently. He'd actually been almost lifted off the platform where he was preaching, but he was making no sense. And he was just becoming a zombie. And everybody came and prayed for him and nothing happened. And when he was telling me this story, he's sitting there, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, great preacher. I said, so how were you healed? Because pretty obvious you were. And it was, he said, well, it's hard to say. He said, I remember that someone with a clerical collar came in to visit me. And he said, I don't know what he said. He couldn't understand people but he said, then I suddenly was in my right mind, coherent, and in front of me was bread and wine. And I could see that I had just eaten the bread. He was healed, though he knew nothing about it, and as a good charismatic, probably had never heard of it. But he had actually eaten into his shriveling brain the mind of Christ. And he was healed, made whole. And so there you have it. And so I urge those of you on Zoom, especially those who brought with you to the Zoom bread and wine as we tell you to, that as we come in a few moments that you will 
eat and drink in the light of what we've been talking about.